Welcome to Practicing, an ongoing conversation about spiritual practices. My name is Jason Pfeffer, and I will be your host on this journey. I am so glad you are joining us. In this podcast, we are exploring different ways of practicing our faith. We practice our faith because, well, because we're all practicing, aren't we? Growing each day in our ability to follow Jesus and his teachings takes practice. Christian spiritual practices are not great lofty activities for really serious Christians. They are for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Spiritual practices are simply any activity that helps us become attentive to the presence of Jesus in our everyday lives. Because in his presence, we are formed by Jesus to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. In this first season, we are exploring the basics of spiritual practices. What are they? Why are they important? What do they do? And where do they come from? We want to demystify spiritual practices so that we can clearly see how they may help us follow Jesus. Coming along on this journey, we have the incredible Jenny Potter. Jenny is producing this little endeavor. We're grateful for her wisdom and for keeping us on track. You'll get to hear from her just a little bit later. And I'm also joined by the most amazing co-host, Andy Moss. Andy, I'm excited to have you along for these conversations, my friend. Jason, great to join you again. <laughs> so Andy, in this episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about history. So can I ask you a history question? Uh, please do. What, Andy, what was the worst part of the American Revolution? I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm assuming your answer is going to be all the tea that was thrown in Boston Harbor? Um, that it still is a great crime, in my opinion. Um, I actually used to be a, a, a high school a history teacher back in England. So, um, and I do have to say, we didn't teach the American Revolution. In, uh, in, why, we, we don't, why is that? <laughs> we, we, don't, we didn't tend to teach uh, wars that we lost. I think that's the general <laughs> principle. So uh, <laughs> my, my knowledge of the American Revolution is a little sketchy. Let's just say that. Okay, that's, that's fair. <laughs> well, in this episode, we're looking at the origin of spiritual practices. Where do spiritual practices come from? And to help us answer that question, we have Chris Hall with us. Chris is a former professor and seminary dean. Currently, he serves as the president of Renovare, a ministry focused on helping people becoming more like Jesus through spiritual practices of Jesus and the historical church. Chris has written a series of books highlighting uh, the teachings from the early church, reading scripture with the church fathers, learning theology with the church fathers, worshiping with the church fathers. Chris, Thank you so much for joining us today. It's really good to be with you. Yeah. Well, Chris, let's, let's dive in. Far I is, away. <laughs> I think that this is a really important question for a lot of people in the church today. Where do spiritual practices come from? To where do we trace their origins? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, for evangelical folks, rightly so, they would be concerned, I think, if this were a development that was a development outside of the scripture, something we couldn't find in the scripture. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe it's something that's a mutation of the scripture's teaching rather than what the scripture is actually saying. I've heard that sometimes from folks, those kinds of concerns. So uh, I think the starting point for understanding uh, fundamental issues and patterns about spiritual formation, a really good place to start is with Jesus. Now, Jesus is growing up in a Jewish world. He's also growing up what I would call a Hellenized world or a Greek world. 
the, the folks who were occupying Israel at the time that Jesus is alive are Roman folk, and Roman folk had absorbed many uh, Greek ideas in terms of how they approached the gods and their own environment. One place to start then would be, it's a common place. You know what I mean by a common place? It's just a principle that everybody accepted in the ancient world. Jesus himself, and we can see this in his practices. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're Greek, whether you're Roman, nobody would be surprised by the idea that to have a healthy relationship with God would require certain practices. If someone said, you know, you're going to have to train in your spiritual life like an athlete trains to stay in shape. Most people in the ancient world would say, duh, duh. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Now, where, where we get concerned uh, as Christian folks is it sounds sometimes as though, well, you're, we're falling back into a pattern of works. Hmm. We're trying to earn something from God rather than to receive something from God. And I think just the basic pattern that Jesus would teach and Paul, I'll give some examples here in just a moment, would be no. You're not earning anything from God. God's given you everything you need to be in a relationship with God. But the very same God who's given you everything you need knows who he's dealing with, if I can put it that way. <laughs> knows who he's dealing with and knows that God's image bearers, every one of us, precious human beings, have a mind and we have a body. We're embodied selves. So that it would not surprise Jesus Father, Son, Holy Spirit have ordained certain practices, as you're putting it, certain practices, certain means that grace, grace flows into and out of and forming a shape and shaping an image bearer ever more deeply into the image of Jesus. And some of these very directly, for example, would address our body. So top of the list for that one would be fasting very a direct address to our body. Others address our minds. Uh, I think here are the discipline of study, for example. Uh, the fundamental text that's been really helpful to me regarding Jesus is in Luke chapter five, verses 15 and 16. This is though a, an extremely important text. If anybody's wondering, did Jesus really do these things? Uh, with this goal in mind of being prepared for whatever the Lord might ask of him on a given day. Uh, this is in Luke chapter 5, verse 15. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So Jesus, Lucas is saying here, is extremely busy. He's been given the most important work in the history of humankind. And people are coming to him, Luke writes, to listen to his teaching, to hear him, and they're coming to be healed of their sicknesses. Now what Luke sometimes likes to do, he likes to juxtapose things. He likes to put one, one particular emphasis, say in uh, verse 15, 
And then in verse 16, he contrasts very strongly what was going on in verse 16. So in verse 15, look at how busy Jesus is, teaching, healing. And then you go to verse 16 and, and Luke comments, but he would often withdraw to lonely places and pray. I mean, I think about how often you, you just see someone, a friend who you haven't seen a while and you ask, how you doing? And nine times out of 10, the response is, oh, I'm so busy. I'm doing well, but I'm really busy. And we're, we're so busy. And, and I think to see the example of Jesus as someone who was incredibly busy with, as you said, work that is far more important than anything that we're doing. And yet still he was carving out that time to get away to lonely places for prayer, for solitude, to be with the Father, right? I can hear Dallas Willard saying, here you have Jesus knowing I must live with these rhythms in my life if I'm going to do the work mm. that the Father's asked me to do, that my Father's asked me to do. And Dallas saying, how much more so we in our much more troubled condition? Mm. So in a manner of speaking, what, what these different practices help us do, they help us to get straightened out so that when we minister to people, we do so safely, sanely, in the power of the Spirit, but never, never in a way by God's grace, but God's grace not separated from something that's very concrete and practical. We're formed and shaped in such a way that we can be around people and help people and not harm people. And again, that's true for for our entire lives, right? I mean, whether we're in ministry or not, that, that straightening, that, that unbending allows us to engage the marketplace, to engage our families in the way that, that Jesus would have us engage them. Absolutely. Uh, this is for everybody. Uh, Paul says this in, in his letter to the Galatians. The fundamental goal of all these things is faith working itself out in love. <laughs> the only thing that counts Jesus says the very same thing as he's interacting with a, a lawyer, where you ask him, ask him, well, what's, what's the most important commandment? Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So it's not the practices that I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm interested in the practices. There's help to learn about them. And there's really good books available to us to learn how to pray or to learn how to be in silence, or to learn how to study for that matter. The heart of the matter, though, is whether I'm a business person, whether I'm a pilot, whether I'm a, someone who's raising children at home, whatever the, whatever the environment I find myself in, is that I would be someone, and because I've entered into life with Jesus by following the model he's provided me with, as I imitate him, what should be happening through the power of the Spirit and the grace of God operative in me is I'm learning how to love people. I think we, we're very used to, we like to categorize things, we like to label things, we like to give things names. And so today we would talk about spiritual practices and disciplines. But for someone who maybe is just starting to explore, when they look in the Bible, they don't find that terminology anywhere. So, and I, and I, and I think you've really been answering this question anyway, but can you just kind of, explicitly state how we move from um, descriptions of what we see Jesus doing to a point now where we have a, a list of spiritual practices. Hmm. Well, we have, we have lots of spiritual practices 
mentioned in the Bible, lots mentioned in the New Testament. So prayer is mentioned, silence is mentioned, solitude is mentioned, sometimes mentioned in the sense of a practice, uh, seeing Jesus do something. Luke says he often would withdraw to lonely places or desolate places and pray. So we can, we can look at what he's doing and attach a name to it. Paul will use these athletic metaphors. So he used an athletic metaphor in 1 Corinthians 9, starting around verse 24, when he'll describe Greek athletes training themselves and engaging in given disciplines in the training to, to gain a, a wreath of laurel leaves. And, and the, I think the way the NIV translates it is, they do it to attain a perishable wreath. In other words, they enter these given practices. And then the way NIV translates it, we do it to uh, nurture our relationship with God. So we do it comes to be known very quickly uh, over, over the next 100 to 200 years as the discipline. The discipline. So you have, you have holy, holy people, holy men, some holy women in uh, the late second century and on into the third century who are noticing these patterns in Jesus's life. And they begin to consciously imitate them through, through developing over time, takes anywhere from 150 to say 300 years, developing what's known as, quote unquote, the discipline. So you have folks moving out into the the desert in Egypt. You have folks moving up into the hills above uh, of Ant uh, the hills above Antioch in Syria, monastic communities forming up there. The goal for, for both groups, love for God and love for neighbor, but then they develop over time through studying these texts and through oftentimes a, a process of trial and error. Well, this works well, this doesn't work, work so well and so on, they develop a discipline. And the discipline is characterized by uh, things, uh, practices related to community life, because most of them are living in community. Disciplines that were surely related to the Bible, because everybody, everybody is concerned about, how can I put it, practicing the scripture. Not simply studying the scripture, but practicing it. So there's, there's an emphasis on the memorization of uh, biblical texts. People are concern, concerned about how much they're eating, and they, they have an awareness to, of, of how we can become reliant on food in an unhealthy way. Uh, what happens in these uh, communities that begin to practice the disciplines, almost surely the cracks in your own personality are going to show up. The, the cracks in your personality will, will become apparent um, and have to be dealt with. Uh, but over time, I believe, what we can spot is the Holy Spirit guiding and directing the Christian community to learn how to live well, models that the, the church at that time and we today can look at and glean from them certain principles that are helpful. They were um, trying to find a way to live with God would develop love within them for God and neighbor. Over time, they got better at it. Principle one, training is required. Simple as that, training is required. 
we say, well, what do you mean training is required? And they would respond, well, have you ever saw an athlete enter into the freedom that you see an athlete involved in, say, basketball? If you watch a basketball player, a basketball player is not looking down when he's dribbling the basketball. He's not even thinking about dribbling the basketball. Why? Well, growing up as a little kid, he's probably, or getting into high school, he's probably dribbling the basketball uh, 10,000 times a day. Why? He's an athlete. Yeah. He's got a body. So for that body to be trained and enter into the freedom you would see with a Michael Jordan or a, for me, I always loved Iverson, uh, even though he would complain about practice. Practice? <laughs> we talk about practice. practice. <laughs> We're talking about practice. He practiced. He practiced all the time. So, so that was one fundamental principle for all these folks. They weren't surprised by the notion that spiritual development, spiritual character formation would involve their bodies because they, they uh, knew, uh, let me use modern language, they knew that we're embodied selves. So that's the first principle. The second principle, if training is involved, effort will be involved. Mm. Effort is involved. I, I know of a, a well-known writer, Henry Nouwen, who said the idea of a spiritual life without effort, a spiritual life without effort isn't possible. When I was a young believer, Yes, so I, I, can you explain this to me? Yes, the gospel makes sense. What do I do next? Oh, there's a prayer that I can pray. That's good. That's good. How many times should I pray it? You know, asking Jesus into my heart. Well, how many times do I pray it? Uh, and walk through that process and the, the joy of entering, say, the, the joy of entering the kingdom in a relationship with Jesus. All right. Now I'm in the kingdom. What happens now? Because I knew, even though I'm in the kingdom, it's still me. It's still me. Same habit patterns, same you know, habit patterns embedded in my body itself, same patterns of thinking that were harmful, not helpful. What do I do now? And for some people I heard, well, you don't do anything. Because that would be trying to earn your relationship with God. And even at that point in time, I was thinking, well, you know, because I had an, a little bit of an athletic background, I was thinking, that's kind of strange. Why, why would it be so different in the kingdom of God from every other pattern of human life? If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna cook, I gotta learn how to cook, right? I'm going to run. I have to learn how to run. If I'm going to learn how to play basketball, I have to learn how to play basketball. Why would it be suddenly in my relationship with God, it's completely devoid of concrete advice on how I'm to live? And then I would hear, I would, I would hear from some folks, and I was thankful for this. Uh, well, Chris, there is a way that you can learn. How, you, you can learn how to live. That's called wisdom. I, I remember one mentor said to me, wisdom is learning how to live. And at that point I said, I said, well, that's great. What do I do? 
<laughs> what do I do? What do I do? And finally, it was, I think, around, took a while around the mid 80s uh, through reading one of Richard Foster's books that he helped me to see, oh, teach me how to pray. Teach me how to get past old habit patterns that are just chewing me up. Teach me concretely what I can do to move beyond how I'm bent habitually for my first 20 years of life into a different kind of life. Teach me. I'm wide open here. And at that point in time, you know, a lot of people were looking at me with blank, blank expressions on their face because it sounded so much like you're trying to earn nothing from God, earn something from God. I'm not trying to earn anything from anybody. I just want to know how to live. I want to know how to live well with God. Why is this so hard for you to explain to me? Well, I think it was hard for a lot of folks to explain because it had never been taught to them for fear of thinking I'm somehow my status with God is increasing because I'm learning how to live well. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God loves the spiritually undisciplined people as much as God loves spiritually disciplined people. God's love for us is not predicated on how well we do with these things. Well, Chris, you've, you've said a couple of times now, you've talked about the training and you've talked about grace and you've talked about not earning. And it just, it makes me think of that really well-known statement from Dallas, Dallas Willard, when he said that grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed right. to earning. That's right. I think that's exactly right. That was so freeing to me because uh, nobody was helping me. I was getting a, there was a bumper sticker. I remember this bumper sticker. I hope the creator of the bumper sticker is not part of your listening audience. <laughs> you know, let go and let God. So, well, that's not, that wasn't helpful. Let go. So my relationship with God is going to be an entirely passive affair. Mm. Entirely passive. Oh, all right. Well, here I am. Here I am, Lord. And I can see, I can see Jesus actually looking at me if I'm in that passive stance and very gently saying, uh, son, what are you doing? Um, I'm waiting. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You're open to me. What, what I want you to do is not simply wait. I want you to look at how I lived and I will teach you to pray. I'll teach you to fast. I'll teach you to lead a sexually holy life. I'll teach you these things, but you're going to have to engage with me. You're not earning anything from me. I wouldn't want you to think of our relationship being like that. What kind of relationship is that? Where you're earning something from someone who's, who's uh, wants to simply be in a loving relationship with you. But in my world, I can hear Jesus saying in my world, we all understood that growing, growing is not simply a passive affair. There are some who would look at scripture and say, yes, I see that Jesus got a way to pray. We see that happen often in scripture. Uh, but then they might hear about a specific practice of prayer, maybe something that was uh, developed by 
the Orthodox Church, say something like the Jesus Prayer, repeating a prayer yeah. over and over until it becomes the way I talk about it is becomes the the sound the ongoing soundtrack of your life. But some people will hear about a practice like that that while it's grounded in scripture, the words of the prayer are grounded in scripture. While it comes from that passage that you referenced earlier from Second Thessalonians to pray without ceasing, there are some who mm-hmm. would have a problem with that practice because they don't see that practice explicitly laid out in scripture. While they see Jesus did pray, but he didn't pray exactly like that, at least not as far as we see it in scripture. How would you respond to somebody who is skeptical of a specific prayer that was developed somewhere during church history that they can't see explicitly laid out in scripture? Well, I'd probably say a couple things. Number one would be, careful, there's lots of things that you're engaging in right now in your life with God in the early in the 21st century that you will not find in the Bible. Mm. That would be the first thing I would say. But I would say that that's not problematic for me. There's, here's a, uh, Jason, here's a, uh, an illustration that I've used with folks. The gospel is like DNA in a seed. Hmm. And you plant the seed in the ground. And most folks thought Jesus is coming back soon. <laughs> so now we're 2,000 years later. So you take a seed, it's planted in the ground, And then when I think of church history, I think of church history in its best moments as the unfolding developmentally of the DNA contained in that seed. There's nobody in Chicago who's living like folks lived back in the first century. Not a one. They're living in Chicago. They drive cars. They watch television. They watch movies. They go see the Blackhawks play. our lives are significantly different, but there's DNA that's of the, go- the DNA of the gospel is replicating itself in their lives through the power of the Spirit. So when I think of church history, I think of that DNA replicating itself. And now I think it can mutate. And at the point, we have to always be gauging the development of the DNA. We still have to be uh, gauging those developments against what we find in the Bible. The church fathers, those folks I spend time with, would have been absolutely one, one of one mind at this point. So those are the first couple things. The third would be uh, my mentor, a man by the name of Thomas Oden, who passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, we were just dear friends. Tom had a wonderful phrase that I think illustrates how the Bible is absolutely fundamental. But think of this idea of DNA replicating itself in the bloodstream of the church, possibly mutations, but replicating itself. Uh, He said this, the Holy Spirit has a history. The Holy Spirit has a history. And what he meant by that was he saw that phrase is a a corrective to a common uh, Protestant perspective, and particularly evangelical perspective, which is this. You know, things were going great in the first century, just great. But somehow when we got into the second century, the train jumps the track and the train doesn't get back on the track until the 16th century. So you have well nigh 1,500 years 
when the Holy Spirit is strikingly absent from the church's history. And Tom's point was, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit has a history. And in every century, you can see the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. So I think one of the reasons why it's really good to understand the dynamic of church history, how church history works, and what to expect there, which is a mixture of good and bad, just like today, uh, folks, uh, I bet money, folks, two or 300 years from now, will look at our lives as Christians, and many will be saying, what were they thinking? <laughs> what were they thinking? But it's hard for us to see that because we're so close to, to our own uh, point of view and our own time in history and so on. Uh, so what, what Tom encouraged me to do uh, and why I ended up, I pretty much ended up spending, I've spent the last 40 of my years of my life doing this. He encouraged me, just camp out for you. I end up camping out in the first four centuries or five centuries of the church's history and uh, right on up to the present day. But he said, if you, if you were to picture church history, remember the church history, uh, the Holy Spirit has a history and puts your greatest emphasis in terms of your study and practices and so on, on the foundational period, which is the first century. But then again, particularly foundational, and this will be true for, uh, I think we at, it, we at our wisest moments, put your greatest weight on those who lived closest to the time of the apostles. The metaphor I've sometimes used at this point is the metaphor of music. So you have the, the you have the, um, beautiful music of the gospel. Jesus is singing the music, say, of the gospel. The apostles are singing the music of the gospel. They know it. That's why they're absolutely authoritative for we as believers today. They know the music. Well, and they pass the music on. They pass the music on. So my point would be this. If I find Ignatius of Antioch in the second century or Polycarp, in the second century, singing the music in a certain fashion. People who knew the Apostle John, if I find them singing the music in a certain fashion, I'm going to listen to the music they're singing much more closely than some blessed image bearer in the 21st century who knows uh, perhaps her time in the 21st century really well and knows the first century somewhat well. These folks mind and heart had been so deeply formed and shaped by the gospel. I'm talking second century, third century, fourth century. That uh, their minds were, for example, biblical Rolodexes. <laughs> they, they just knew the scripture from beginning to end. They lived in that world. But what they were doing is they were taking that world and now moving it out from the Jewish world of Jesus. They had an outreach to Jewish folks but as things developed, it was more and more Gentile, more and more Greek, more and more Roman, and they had to adapt. But they, so their, their call was to faithfully replicate the DNA of the gospel within their own context. If we look at them today, we can perhaps say, see certain blind spots. Uh, so for example, some of what uh, ancient Christians have, have written about the role of women in the church, I don't find all that helpful. And so we, I would say that we see certain things more clearly in the 21st century than they did then. But I would also say that they saw some things much more clearly than we do in the late 21st century. 
I think they'd probably be shocked about some of the things that we do, blithely, joyfully. They would wonder, have you lost your mind? <laughs> you know, what, what could you possibly be thinking? So we need each other. My point is we need each other. And uh, there can be a cross-pollination that takes place over time where uh, the flowers that they offer us, we can gather in a bouquet and put it up on the shelf and we can perhaps offer a flower or two to them. Although I, I do think that they have more flowers to offer to us today than, than we have to offer to them. Hopefully there'll be a maturation of evangelical perspective that occurs in, in the years to come. Some things just take time. Uh, some things take time. Spiritual formation, I think, is the slowest of all human movements. So no rush. Some things just take time. Chris, I was really struck by your the illustration of DNA, and that, that is very helpful. So I'm, I'm wondering, we, we in the 21st century, we in our church, we find ways to um, ex express um, the gospel in spiritual practices. And maybe those spiritual practices, as you said, look somewhat different to 1,000, 2,000 years ago. Can you give us any recommendation as to how we, we can check or we can evaluate and make sure that we're on track, that we're not maybe developing a practice or using a practice in a way that, that isn't helpful? Well, yeah, a couple of things. One would be uh, become educated. <laughs> That's really direct. What I mean by that is uh, we need to lengthen. We need to lengthen and deepen our historical memory. That'd be the first thing. A lengthening and deepening of historical memory, theological understanding, a lengthening and a deepening. We need to, we, we need to, to uh, develop an empathetic listening ear. And what I mean by that is the ability to listen to someone else from another time and place, to listen and not immediately react to listen deeply to what they might have to offer us. And I think the only way to do that is we read and then we take our bodies, this is a spiritual discipline, we take our bodies maybe to other places where there's Christians alive and well, and we watch and we learn and we listen. We can experience that sometimes with spiritual practices as well, right? Like we engage a spiritual practice that might initially be uncomfortable, but there's something about that I would refer to as disequilibrium as we enter into something that we're unfamiliar <laughs> with, right? And there's something yeah, right. there's something about the loss of equilibrium. There's something about that that just that little bit of disruption that seems to open us more fully to God's presence, God's work, to hear God more clearly. There's something really helpful. But when we hold something at arm's length because it's unfamiliar and we're unsure about it and it's different and we don't actually engage it. And I mean, you talked about listening early. We don't listen. We, we, we rob ourselves of that experience of God's presence and growth and being formed more and more to be like Christ. I think that's right. Empathetic listening. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, there's a philosopher, he's now retired. 
He was, he was up at Yale for a number of years. His name was Nicholas Olterstorff. And so he would teach all his graduate students what, he, what came to be known amongst the grad students as Volterstorff's rule. And this is applicable to empathetic listening. So Volterstorff's rule, I'll explain it to you in just a moment, was specifically designed to prevent students from caricaturing positions they disagreed with, building a straw man and then knocking it over and thinking that they had resolved whatever problem they were facing, say in this case, philosophically. So with Volterstorff's rule, here's the rule. You have not represented your opponent's position fairly until you see him sitting across the table from you. You see her sitting across the table from you and you explain her position, the one with which you are going to disagree. You explain it. And she smiles and says, yes, that is indeed what I believe. And then you, and then you are, you have a debate, you argue and so on. We are not good at that mm -mm. because that requires us empathetically entering into somebody else's mind, reading what they've written very carefully, not just a speed read. Oh no, that couldn't possibly be right. But reading it carefully and asking the question, why would someone believe this is true? Why would they believe it's true? Well, there's a reason I can tell you there's a reason. So and his, the, the church's history is replete with, with, uh, wondrous people who, if he would simply, simply be willing to listen, imagine them sitting across the table and we ask, we ask Ignatius of Loyola, well, why in the world would you think this? Or we ask, uh, Catherine of Siena or John Chrysostom or Basil the Great or Ignatius of Antioch. Why would you believe this? Anybody who reads the Bible would know that couldn't possibly be true. I can see all of them saying, well, uh, sorry to say, I've been reading the Bible too for, you know, I've memorized it. Let me explain to you why I believe this is true. And then learning occurs. That doesn't mean at that point that I agree with whatever, say, Basil was saying, but it does mean I've taken the time and said, you know, I've got so many hours in the day I believe that what you're saying or what you've written is important enough to me. I'm going to get to know you. And we make decisions every day like that in terms of how we're using our time. I believe it's of the utmost importance that I get to know you. And I could see Basil saying, well, you old grizzly bear. Well, I'm glad you do. Let's spend time together. And we learn. So there's a, so what we want to avoid, I think, is um, among other things, an intellectual pride. You know, I think, I think, I think Walter Storff's rule would rebuke that. Uh, among other things, I think Jesus's teaching would rebuke it. So we want to avoid intellectual pride. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the antithesis to pride is a humble, teachable spirit. Um, 
and we want to we want to avoid intellectual laziness. Here's what so intellectual laziness would either be quickly changing our mind on what we believe without doing the hard work of why am I actually changing how I believe about something or not being willing to engage in the hard work of learning to use my mind well with God and before God. Uh, and just kind of, uh, so an intellectually a lazy uh, person would be someone just kind of carried along with the cultural, cultural consensus or carried al along with whatever uh, 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 Christian consensus seems to be the ruling word of the moment. Uh, just evangelicals might ask themselves, what was really important to us in the 1970s? What's really important to us today? You know, 40 years later. Wow. How'd that change so dramatically, if such is indeed the case? So, um, yeah, you can tell, probably tell from my tone of voice, these things are important to me because um, lives are at stake. Lives are at stake. Uh, whether uh, a person is, is loving well is at stake. Whether they are learning to listen well is at stake. Well, it, whether they're willing to change their mind is at stake. Whether they change their mind too quickly is at stake. Lots of things at stake. And I, my, my heart's desire is to see God's uh, blessed image bearers change more and more deeply into his image. So they're substantially transformed. Yeah, I think with the, the ministry I'm now president of Renovare, our mission is to help those folks. Imagine someone who's been going to church all their life. They wake up one morning, they've been in church for 30 years, and they look in the mirror and they say to themselves, you know, I'm the same person I was 30 years ago. Well, that's our mission, is to help that person enter more deeply into a process of formation and transformation that is time-tested. It's time-tested. It's nothing new for the Orthodox. It's nothing new for the Catholics. It's nothing new for, the, for Protestant folks in the, on their best days. But it's pretty new for evangelicals. And it's, it's biblically grounded, but biblically grounded in the sense uh, that I've defined it, taking the DNA of the gospel, taking the teaching of the scripture, and being willing to listen to how people have read this text for 2,000 years, not simply the first 100 years, and then from Luther on. Yeah, just feeling um, convicted, I think, that maybe my resistance or unease with the idea of spiritual practices sometimes is, is more to do with it being counter-cultural than it is to do with it being counter-Christian and realizing not to confuse those two things. I think that's right. Most, a lot of Christians don't realize that they're practicing stuff all the time. I mean, embodied people do all the time. They have certain practices regarding when they go to sleep at night, when they get up in the morning, uh, what they eat, choices they make about what they eat, how much sleep they get. I mean, all through the day, they're practicing 
certain things. The question becomes, are those practices bringing them closer to God, closer to each other, uh, or not? So the idea of practice is a basic given, I would argue, in any human culture. It's just hard to spot the practices when you're living in the midst of them, because it, it seems like second nature. Oh, everybody does this. Well, no, that's where history can help us. I like that idea of introducing the, the question of why, rather than focusing on what it is that maybe someone is suggesting we do, um, and asking, well, what's the why behind that? What is the, the reason, and why did people used to do it in the past? Even if it might look slightly different for us today, um, being drawn into that why question. I, personally, I'm going to find that very helpful for sure. Yeah, I think the why, it's in, the why is more love. And I just, I just read a book this past week by a doctor up at Harvard Medical School. He's a psychiatrist up there, has a Christian background. The book is written for a largely secular audience, but he talks about the neural pathways in our brains have been formed and shaped across the years by the decisions we choose to make, by what we practice. But sadly, uh, the grooves in the neural system, which can be spotted on our brains, they light up, sadly, they prevent people from entering more deeply into uh, happiness and joy, for example. But what the research is showing now shouldn't surprise us at all in the church. It should be like a duh moment. What the research is showing is those, those neural pathways, those grooves can be changed. And, and they can be changed. The data showing indicate they can be changed within 45 days some of those deeply embedded patterns. Oh, I'm always, I'll always be like this. I can't, I couldn't possibly change. And the data is showing, well, yes, you can. And then I can hear Jesus saying, yep, there it is. <laughs> yeah, so what do I do? Um, what are some of my practices? I wake up earlier and I rumble out, uh, I, actually now I, I come into my office, you can see my office a little bit. Come into my office and I make a pot of coffee and I, I sit down in my office and I basically hang out with God. I might use it as a really good app, app called Lectio 365. I don't know if you've heard of that. Lectio 365, it's from England. It's just so wonderful. And I might use that app I, and I just hang out. I'm not in any rush. I'm not in any rush to accomplish anything. It'd be like sitting down your, with your wife and saying, let's accomplish something. No, you just want to sit with your wife. So I, I just come in and I might spend, I have this, this particularly in light of the, the coronavirus situation, I got some time and I might spend two or three hours. I might read, I might pray. I've got in the back of a journal the names of folks I pray for. I might listen to scripture. I just hang out. I'm not trying to accomplish something. I think that's important. I'm not trying to do something. I'm just put, I think I'm just putting myself in a place where I think one of the ancient writers says, well, what are you doing? Well, I look at him and he looks at me. And uh, for me, the, the character from fiction that helps me at that point is Aslan. C.S. Lewis is Aslan. 
know, I just sometimes there's Aslan sitting, sitting there looking at me, those big eyes. But he's not saying anything, and I'm not saying anything. Or, or more and more, Jesus is sitting across from me in another chair. I imagine him sitting there, and we're just we're spending time together, but maybe for two or three hours. And then a couple of days a week, I won't tell you what they are, but a couple of days a week, I'm fasting because I, I, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, which means I like to eat, I like to have fun, I like to be self-indulgent, I be setting sin as gluttony. People hear that what Michael in the States hear what my besetting sin is gluttony, and everybody kind of chuckles because that's one of the besetting sins of North American culture. Mm. But it's nothing to, 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 to chuckle about, really. It means that I somehow, left to myself, would try to use the good things that God has given us in a way that would ultimately destroy my life. They become substitutes for God. So anyway, those are just some of the simple things that I do. Um, it's not rocket science. But, it's, but at the beginning, it's hard. But that's to be expected if we're changing deeply embedded habitual responses to life and to God. So the goal, remember, the goal is always love for God and love for neighbor. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. This was super helpful and such a great conversation. Thank you for making the time to be with us. Oh, it was such a gift to have Chris with us to explore where spiritual practices come from. And friends, as you listened today, what did you notice? What stood out for you? What might the Holy Spirit be shining a light on for you today? Well, this is the part of the podcast where Jenny jumps on the mic and <laughs> she literally just jumped on the mic <laughs> and we have a conversation about what we noticed in our time together today. Jenny, what resonated with you? I didn't go to seminary, but I feel like I was <laughs> in an accelerated, condensed <laughs> seminary class. <laughs> I think Chris named some roadblocks for me in my own faith history in terms of familiar language that kind of prevented me from feeling like I needed to engage in spiritual practices kind of with that whole mm -hmm. if we've been saved by grace you know we don't need to we don't mm -hmm. need to be doing we don't need to be doing more to earn our way and I really loved his kind of his history lesson actually really did help me think through that that is more of a new thought that if you, I mean, I, yeah, to basically quote him, I think he said, if you talk to people like thousands of years ago and said, do you need to be disciplined in order to, to better experience or, you know, to, to further and deepen your relationship with God, they'd be like, duh. Of course, <laughs> I think yeah. that's exactly what they would say. <laughs> and, and somehow we've, distorted it to, oh no, that means that you're not actually experiencing God's grace. And I, I think that message definitely has taken root in my like faith origins. But I love what he said when he said that God knows who he's dealing with, that God is dealing with people with a body and a mind. So of course God would meet us in both of those 
places, maybe even, you know, more deeply. And so, um, yeah, just honestly, even just that phrase of body and mind, that even was like a helpful of bringing my body into it more. You know, mm -hmm. I think I've mentioned that I really do feel like I, I connect to God more deeply when I'm moving. And that was just another kind of invitation of, right, my, God created my body and my body can connect to God, not just my mind, not just my, yeah. you know, feelings, but my physical being is an opportunity to connect me yeah. deeper, deeper to God. So well, there's a reason that people have prayed with postures for a long yeah. time, right? Yeah. That things are not either or that it can be kind of, yeah, that your spiritual and your being could actually be a lot more closely connected. Growing up, when we talk about the body, it's like this is, you know, it's lust, it's sin, it's mm -hmm. all the ways that the body is the depravity of the body versus, you know, like this is, you know, Jesus came incarnate. This is actually very spiritual mm -hmm. and, and beautiful and worth, worth being aware of and, and present in. So yeah. those were some things. And then he talked about this idea of practicing the scripture that phrase will just stay with me for a long time. I feel like there's, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're wearing a shirt that literally says prayer in action right now. And I think there, you know, just this idea of what is the means of these things if we're not actually putting them into more practice? What is the means of reading scripture if we're not, yeah, if we're not taking it somewhere? So just that phrase, but it felt like a, a healthier way of less shameful than like, oh, practice what you preach or, you know, something mm, like that. Mm -hmm. It felt more like, oh, when I think about reading the Bible, I want to be at the forefront of my mind. How am I putting this into practice? Mm -hmm, that okay. just felt like a lovely invitation. Yeah. Wow. I agree. That did not stand out to me, but now I need to go back and listen to it again. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. Wow. What about you, Andy? What stood out to you? I always really appreciate understanding um, and being taught the, the historical background and context of things. And mm -hmm. so I was fascinated as Chris explained how you know, spiritual practices have been practiced for, you know, 2000 years now. And that whilst their, their, their shape may have changed over the years and probably a lot of that's to do with culture that we, we can trace many of them, you know, many of them back and ultimately trace it back to what Jesus did. That is, mm -hmm. is actually the, the, the things that Jesus did as part of his daily life. Um, so that was, that was really interesting. And I love the illustrations as well. So where he was talking about the music of the gospel and, you know, learning, I suppose, to listen for the, you know, the, the harmonies, yeah. through through you know through the history of the church what with the harmonies that have been created and, and again the the notes may be slightly different but it, it's it's still picking up on what you know what is true and what is good and what what's beautiful um, and again that also that illustration of the dna of the gospel yeah that that the dna uh, leads to you know the, the the church grows and develops through through history but that the question is not are we doing exactly what people used to do but rather is this still in line with and in line with the integrity of the gospel that was i i you clearly you can tell it's all rather jumbled in how i'm saying it so there was it seemed really deep and i'm i'm struggling at this early stage i think to, <laughs> to process it but those those pictures um i think 
are going to stick for sure. And there's a lot to, to think about and think through. But I always, I always like it. I'm a sucker for a good illustration. And those to me mm. seem like really thoughtful, thought provoking um, ideas to help me to really dig into and try to understand, understand this topic. Yeah, that sense of the DNA of the gospel was really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I appreciated how the thing that stood out to me was how he, well, he, he talked about our reality as being both deeply loved and deeply bent, or, you know, some people would, would say broken. And he said that the practices help us to get straightened out. And then this is the part that really stood out to me. They help us get straightened out so that we can serve people in a safe and healthy way. And I appreciate the balance in what Chris had to say, because I think we live in such a a busy world and we get so caught up in doing things for God that we rarely slow down to be with God. But both being and doing are both really, really important. I mean, I even think back to, you know, some of our conversation with Megan and Matt and how we talked about, you know, spiritual formation and spiritual education and how these are two sides of the same coin. And I feel like this idea of being with God and doing things for God are two sides of the same coin. And we need to respond to Jesus's invitation to make disciples. That is a really, really important call that he has placed in our lives. But we also need to follow his example to retreat to prayer. And it's like breathing. So try spending a whole day only exhaling. I mean, try to, try to spend a minute only exhaling. You can't, right? You, you can't do it. Likewise, we can't spend you know, a, a minute just inhaling. We have to live this balanced life of both doing and being. And if we're only doing, we are ultimately going to be doing in a way that is harmful to people. And I think there's another example that someone once gave me, and they talked about a body of water. And if a body of water doesn't uh, only has an outlet, it's going to dry out, right? If it's only doing, if it's only uh, giving out and there's no inlet, it's going to dry out. And likewise, if it has no outlet and only an inlet, the water is going to become stagnant and poisonous. And so we have to have both inlets and outlets, and this is a critical part of our life. And so I really appreciated that balance that Chris had to share with us. Well, friends, at the end of every podcast, we want to leave you with an invitation. I hope that you have learned a lot in our time together this season. I know I did. But it's our hope that this time we have spent together will have been more than just information. I hope the conversations and the invitations have spurred us on toward a deeper experience with Jesus in our everyday lives so that we might grow in relationship with him and be formed by Jesus to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. And this is the final episode of our season. And as we look back, what stood out to you across the entire season? We had a number of conversations, all with really meaningful insights. Was there one that stands out to you? Or maybe there's a theme that you noticed weaving throughout these conversations. Perhaps God highlighted the theme of surrender or the theme of your belovedness. Or maybe you had a meaningful experience responding to one of the invitations at the end of our episodes. 
our final invitation to you in this season is to consider what stood out. What has God been speaking to you through our time together? And so let's listen, let's reflect, and let's pay attention to any invitations God may be extending to us right now. So if you are willing, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, would you pause with me now to begin this reflection with Jesus? Let's turn our attention to God. You might close your eyes if you're in a place where it's safe. Don't close your eyes if you're driving. And take a deep breath. And remember that Paul says, in God we live and move and have our being. Think back over the season and our conversations and our invitations. What stands out to you? Is there a particular insight the Holy Spirit is bringing to your attention? Was an experience responding to an invitation particularly meaningful to you? Take a moment now and have a conversation with Jesus about what you're noticing. Talk to him and listen. Sense some continuing invitation from God. Maybe the Lord is inviting you to continue learning about a theme or a practice. Maybe there's a scripture verse that stands out that the Lord is inviting you to spend a month reflecting on one passage, one story. Maybe there's an invitation to return to some practice or to begin a new one. Take a moment now and listen. Does God have a specific invitation for you in this season? I invite you, my friends, to continue this conversation with Jesus. Don't move on too quickly, but trust in the long work of the Lord in your life. God, what a gift it has been to learn from such wonderful people. And yet the gold that we find is really found in our relationship with you. Lord, give us ears to hear your invitations. Give us what courage we need to respond. Help us to live life with you, joining your kingdom work on mission in the world and getting away with you 
So our efforts are grounded in you and in your presence. Make us whole, Lord. Minds, and bodies, and hearts. Make us whole human beings. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining us this season. What a season it has been. We'll be back later this year as we begin to explore specific practices of Scripture. I hope you'll join us for that season. Once again, if you have found this helpful, uh, make sure that you subscribe. Then you'll be one of the first to know when uh, the new season is coming. And we sure would appreciate it if you would rate and or review the podcast as well. Once again, this will help more people to find it. And we pray to be invited into a deeper experience of Jesus in their lives. Thank you once again for joining us. This has been a great deal of fun for us. I hope it was for you as well. We'll see you soon. And may the peace of Christ be with you.